and welcome to the What The Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with Ayana Witter-Johnson. So, time to round off 2021 with some brilliance. Hello, 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 and welcome to the final episode of Series 8 of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. And indeed, it's the final show of 2021. If you're listening to us on Boxing Day, we hope you had a very lovely Christmas and are now looking forward to a moment or two of calm. As always, if you like what you hear, do let a friend know and make sure to subscribe. And remember, you can find us on our website at watfordjazzjunction.com, where you can book tickets to see our shows that include Tony Covey Quintet, who will be painting his portrait of Cannonball Adderley on the 12th of February. And in just a few days, on the 1st of January, we'll be announcing our May 2022 festival lineup, and tickets will also go on sale. Now, to business. Today, I am joined by a singer, cellist and composer. Where words tend to fail me in describing her musical breadth, I shall steal the description from Time Out of honey-sweet vocal delivery with bewitching cello playing. A collaborator from working with Nitin Sawney to Tim Garland, from Riz MC to the jazz-refreshed Sonic Orchestra, commissioned to write by the London Symphony Orchestra and the Kronos Quartet to choose but a couple, and a consummate musical performer on large stages everywhere. It can only be Ayana Witter-Johnson. Ayana, hello! How are you? Hiya, darling. I'm very well, thank you. I love a podcast, I really do. Oh, well, I, I'm glad you like a podcast. You're in the right place. <laughs> so where do I find you in the world? Where are you? I am in North London, Hornsey, to be precise. Must be an Arsenal fan then, right? I don't do football. So it's, well, that's the right answer, <laughs> because if I did, I'd be an Ipswich fan, and an Arsenal is a huge enemy. Um, but yeah, it, did, is that where in the world you grew up? Sort of North London area? I grew up actually... Mostly in Tottenham, but yeah, North London. And I guess most of my family are Tottenham supporters. So if I had to pick a team, it'd probably hey, be Tottenham. Th- th- there are both types of football fans in the world, Arsenal and Tottenham. Not that I know much about football <laughs> either. Um, so you've been in the States, I I think, um, touring with uh, Andrea Bocelli. Um, how's that been? Crazy big venues, right? Yeah, the biggest venues I've performed at, sort of fifteen to 17,000 wow. people a night. Um, fantastic audiences. It's been really, really fun and um, eye-opening to sort of see how something that large scale yeah. works. Oh, I can only imagine. Um, I did have a little peek uh, at you doing uh, Roxanne um, at the Hollywood Bowl. And I'm like, oh, blimey, someone's definitely made it. Yes. that was really great the sound there was incredible serious serious venue so So i'm going to track you back a little bit in time if i may so you are a graduate of trinity uh laban and then the manhattan school of music but what was your sort of musical journey before all that how did you sort of get into it and when did the cello appear all of this i need to know (laughs) so um when i was a child a small child we had a a cassette of um, a wonderful American gospel group called Sweet Honey and the Rock. And this album was sort of on repeat in the house. And my mum took me to see them live in concert. I think I was about three. And I ended up singing along to every song, much to the annoyance of the people in front of us. (laughs) But they they turned around at some point and was like, Oh, she's three. <laughs> she knows all the words. And then so my mum was like, oh, she's got she's got some sort of musical affinity, it would seem. Let's get her started on piano. So I started piano lessons yeah. when I was three or four and excelled quite quickly. Um, 
through most of my grades in primary school. And apart from the dip when I was nine and I didn't want to play anymore. Standard issue. Standard issue. So we worked through that and I kept going and I, I sort of enjoyed the, I don't, I guess it gave me a, a moment of quiet and time for myself. I think I just enjoyed being right. lost in um, that sort of solitary zone because a lot of piano playing tends to be quite solitary, at least when you're learning classically. Yeah. Um, so and I know I did really well and I enjoyed the praise and everything. So I got to secondary school and the the piano, the, the music teacher was going through basic piano skills and I had sort yeah. of way surpassed what he was doing. And so I was assisting him in assisting others in these lessons, which um, he oh, did I love it. <laughs> which Vice he... Principal Ayana takes well, over. Well, you know, age 11, but he didn't think it was a healthy thing to be doing. So he said, okay, when we're doing this, you should do something else, which would be learning a new instrument. So that's where the cello came into it. Amazing. Yeah. And then your brain must have been going, this is very different, right? Because, I mean, I should imagine quite a, lot, a few listeners have, have, have got a sort of basic uh, understanding of the piano or hit it once or twice in their lives or, or, or whatever. But when you then move from that point onto a new instrument, I mean, it's it's completely different process. Did you struggle with that? Or was it like duck to water again, as it was with the piano? Because I could already read music and I was sort of this overachieving kid, I loved having my sort of open strings homework and like, yes, I got it right. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? So I really lapped it up and I I quite enjoyed even the simplest of things like learning how to make a sound or the process of drawing your bow across the string. Like I quite enjoyed that in itself. So I also then started to progress quite quickly with the cello and my music teacher said, oh, we why don't we try and get you a better instrument? So he spoke to the school governor, the school governor loaned me his cello all through school. And then I bought that cello, which is Ruben that I have now. Oh my gosh, so that's been with you, basically your your whole cello life. Pretty much, apart from the school cupboard one in the beginning, yeah. Well, (laughs) and we mustn't mustn't diss the school cupboard one. That's right, yeah. And I hope someone else is playing it today (laughs) and finding their their feet. And then was it always music then from that point forward? You know, when you get to 16, 17, 18, other things start happening in your life, you're Um, going, no, I'm definitely a musician, this is it. Or were there other doubts? It's a good point to bring up because it was clearly something I was very good at and it was a natural thing for me but it was a very academic school so I thought I was going to be a French Mm. or Spanish teacher and I had a place to study French with beginner Spanish at Cambridge and that was like the highlight of my existence up until that point. And presumably your parents life as well. Well, So I hold on she's off to Cambridge that's that can be quite a pressure to say maybe I'll do that. No well they, they never really cared either way which was great so they weren't that attached to me going to Cambridge um and they they weren't um against me following an artistic pathway either and the truth is is that I didn't get the grades to get into Cambridge so that's divine intervention why I didn't actually go yeah absolutely take it yes so that sort of set me on another path and what ended up happening was I was invited by a friend to go to a jam session at the jazz cafe on the Sunday when they used to do the Sunday jams. And she was like, why don't you get up and like do something? And I was like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) So (laughs) I I came back. um, I came back a few weeks later having written this kind of Nina Simone-esque song and then said, right, I've got a song. And then 
it was actually Gary Crosby at the time who had, you know, now it all makes sense, but he was like, well, normally we like know these standards and then we sort of play together. And I was like, but I've got everyone here ready to, to like hear me perform this song. And so um, he let me that one time, but then my eyes were sort of open to lots of things from that point on. So did you ever class yourself then as a Tomorrow's Warrior or was that just sort of a, a, a passing influence, you know, Gary and Janine? Yeah, passing influence. I've always been slightly renegade on the on the fringes of lots of different musical communities, I would say. So yeah, in the oh, sort of it. fringes of jazz and the fringes of classical somewhere. And then, but embraced in the community sense, but not always being really in the heart of any one of those things. Nice, we're rebadging your website as we speak. Uh, <laughs> Musical Renegade. Renegade. Um, so, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Um, so, if I think about you now, uh, songwriter or uh, composer, vocalist or yeah. singer yeah. and cellist, mm. how do you try and keep the balance between those things or is it just a very natural process? Is there something you have to really work at to say, hold on, this needs more time or my brain's not working for me on this space at the minute? You know, that type of thing. Yeah, it is definitely a juggling act and it's normally dictated by whatever project or commission I'm engaged in at the time that might pull more right. focus in any one direction. So now there's a lot yeah. of composing, but a lot of commissions that are also involving me as a performer. So it's sort of like stretching my brain compositionally, but also ah, I've got to practice and learn my own music because I've written something that I don't know. <laughs> I'm not that familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So it's really pushing myself in all the directions, which is intense for sure. No, I bet. As a professional uh, instrumentalist, having a, a week off or a period of time when you're not playing the cello is is not on the cards. So there's always that sort of undercurrent pressure that you need to keep playing sort of every day and keep stuff moving. Does that become a major pressure or is it always a joy? Um, I would say it's a mix. There is pressure, yeah, yeah. but the where there is sort of like unadulterated joy that's normally when i'm on stage like i never feel yeah. any pressure on stage itself that's always like a good space a nice sort of like free space so which was also a revelation being in front of seventeen thousand people because i thought ah that might be scary but actually it's just as comfortable as being in front of a hundred people well, you're on the right. You're on the right show for being in front of a hundred people. I mean, that in fact, that may be too many. Uh, welcome to Watford Jazz Junction, and welcome to both our listeners. Um, so um, we've sort of begin to touch on it. I think my next question. But what is it that you try and fulfil as a musician? Um, and is that any different from who you are in other parts of your life? Is there mm. a, a sort of mission that you're following, or something you're having to do? Um, and does that? differ from you know Ayana and day to day so to speak well it's interesting you say that because as we speak I've been thinking a lot about my purpose as a musician up until now I think what music has done for me is create a vehicle for my sort of personal growth and development so music has helped me to learn about who I am become more compassionate with other people it's definitely um, put me in a spiritual um, space and on a spiritual path personally and now I want to be conscious of how I'm using that to affect other people positively mm. to inspire people um, <clears throat> to share my culture my Jamaican heritage my British culture yeah. as a Londoner so I'm keen to use it educationally spiritually 
and um and in terms of just building positive communities through music that's what we've got to do in life you reference then your jamaican heritage and i've seen you or i heard you talking about that online um or possibly the radio i can't remember when or where <laughs> but i know it went into my brain um but how easy do you find your heritage to tap into within the uk music context is that a very simple thing or are you always discovering finding new challenges and, and what have you yeah it's nuanced because I'm sort of twice removed from the island itself because my parents were also born in London as well as myself so it's it's sort of like digging historically and discovering but then also knowing you know members of your family or friends there's so much to Jamaican music it's incredibly vast for for such a small island in a way not that we can call jamaica a small island not not technically in comparison to like say the usa it's a small enough place but it is definitely punching way above its weight in terms of cultural impact globally and there's so much to tap into so much history um different genres styles what does that mean culturally what you know, the music that was born here, the sort of lovers rock stream coming from the UK. So there's like a a UK part of that. And then there's a straight from the island part of that. And then there's all the Jamaicans that ended up in the USA that have like made such an impact on hip hop and stuff. So there's a Mm. lot lot of roots to explore. So when we spoke about, uh, you know, the musical renegade being on the sort of edge of uh, genres and things, but obviously being welcome in all of them. Do you find that Mm. with sort of personal identity because you referenced obviously america we obviously know Mm. that uh, your your family's heritage is jamaican but of course you're a londoner do you find yourself on the edge of everything or do you actually go actually this all just makes sense this is all me it is all me i definitely feel like a british born jamaican like that's right that's in no doubt i feel that way in america i feel that way here and i feel that way when i'm in jamaica that i'm like english as they would say (laughs) english i like it (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that that makes sense to me and that's clear but i guess um there's so much to unpack even within that which is more an adventure than um a kind of stress factor it's more interesting really interesting really interesting to me as well um Mm. so this is a long-ish question and it's slightly contrived because it pulls in one or two things but we will get to a question so i saw you play very recently uh in the efg london jazz festival and their jazz voice uh show at the royal festival hall uh, which at the time of recording, dear listener, was but two days ago. Even though you're listening to this at the end of December or maybe in January, you can still watch that show on the BBC iPlayer. And it's very good. Ayana, you performed a beautiful cover of the Bee Gees' How Deep Is Your Love, which made me all emotion. But then you really made me emotion when you played this most moving piece of music inspired, um, I think, by your friendship. Because I wasn't listening quite properly, but I think it was your friendship with the late uh, beat poet Michael Horowitz, who obviously I know and heard of, and this song called Sing On Nightingale. And if I understand the story right, that's an expression that he shared with you when you were sort of part after chatting or or being together. My question is, that level of poignancy Mm. in your music, I mean, that's very personal. How do you feel when you're you're sharing sharing such you know intimacy so to speak in you know in front of strangers? Yeah, it it is intimate and it feels um, because the song sort of fills me with joy and a little tinge of sadness when I sing it. I feel like I'm celebrating 
all the good things about our friendship. It feels like a, a wonderful thing to do. And I also like to let people know about Michael so they can go and discover his work. So <laughs> how did that friendship sort of come about? How long had you sort of known each other? And I'm just really interested in that because you're crossing the generations there, right? Yeah, yeah, really crossing the... I think Michael was in his 80s, late 80s. <laughs> um, that's it. We met many years ago at one of the BBC Jazz Awards. The power of jazz to connect. Wicked. Well done, BBC. Very true. Yeah, well done, BBC. And we met... Um, I think he was talking yeah. to Gwyneth Herbert at the time and... I was friends with Gwyneth, I'm friends with Gwyneth, and I think I jumped in on their conversation and then nice. met Michael that way, from my memory, yeah. And then the the title, because um, Sing on Nightingale, he would just pleasantly say that to you as you, as you parted. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know what it is, so there's still something about it. He, he's, like, my God, what a poetic <laughs> he's man. He's such a poet, he's such a, yeah, exactly, yeah. a natural poet, a little, so yeah, very sweet. A little gift for for all of us. So when you switch between genres, do you find much baggage is attached to the styles or is that actually useful baggage that infects other spaces of your creativity? Yeah, I do feel a responsibility and there is a tiny bit of baggage like, am I doing this correctly? You know, but then I, I have to sort of overcome that with every individual project right, right, right. and try to get to the root of what the message is but I do you know mentally and internally find myself having to um, navigate that sense of responsibility or what is conventional and what isn't and what is expected and what isn't um, but then in the end once I've gone through that <laughs> process I usually end up with something that sounds quite like me which is and mixture of those things in a in a balanced way. And that's what we love. That's the melting pot of musical life. Yeah. So, yes. Ayana, yeah. Um, it is time for Chris's highly strung pentagonal quiz. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, question one of five. It's a four-way, four-string tie, but do you choose Yo-Yo Ma, Jacqueline Dupre, Mitslav Rostropovich, or Natalia Gutman? And one cellist you must oh choose. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Jacqueline Dupre. It's locked in. Question two. <laughs> We've already mentioned Ruben. Uh, but Ruben or Ruby, aka your acoustic cello or your electric cello. Oh, that's so mean because I've got to play Ruby this weekend. <laughs> I don't want her to hate me. Um, I'm going to say Ruben. On the plus side, this doesn't mean that Ruby then gets like obliterated or, or, or squashed it's just we needed to know yeah it's it's an honest answer okay question three you're at the halfway-ish yeah. point i guess of five questions um so let's mess up a string quartet so it's goodbye violin two and let's add in well what would you add in Ooh, another cello what i sort of i thought of half of that might be it. but uh no that's good that's good that gets you the full 10 out of 10 on that one um, and obviously I have been keeping score, so let's just say that's two plus four. Yeah, we're at about the 16 mark, which isn't bad. Uh, question four, your penultimate question. Cello in jazz. Who is most likely to be at the top of your iPod? Will we have Ray Brown, for example, his wonderful album Jazz Cello? Will we have Henry Graves, maybe known to many people for his fantastic cello solo on WC Handy's Snaky Blues? Or will we go well modern? And have that US uh, cellist superstar, Jacob Jacelli. 
Who's most likely to be at the top of Ayana's iPod? Oh my goodness. That jazz cello album really did rock my world in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing is that I think it I think it was a cello strung as a bass. That's the only thing. What a big cheat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But hey, I still Well, pick we're up. having it yes. and it's an answer. Yes. <laughs> Good job. Right. So if we add the 16 to a number which I've yet to choose, that will bring you a points tally of, well, I don't know, 24? Hey! Sounds pretty good. Um, and since this is out of 30, you've got six points to play for okay. on your final question. Okay. Okay, question five. We have booked three amazing mashups for our festival fantasy, but they're all playing at the same time. So you have to choose one of these performances to watch. Will it be Aretha Franklin featuring Missy Elliott? Will it be Janis Joplin playing with the Vienna Philharmonic? Or will it be Jesse Norman who's singing with Parliament Funkadelic? Oh my goodness. Who would you, who would you see? <laughs> Oh, that's so cold. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. So we've got Aretha Franklin with Missy Elliott. Okay. We've got Janis Joplin with the Vienna Follett Monarch. Oh, yeah. And we've got Jesse Norman with Parliament. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, ma'am. It, it would have to be um, Aretha and Missy. I think I'm going with that combo. Oh, that's too imagine? wild. <laughs> On the plus side, there were no wrong answers there. That's true. Um, so that does give you 30, but you did it with such a plum. I'm going to give you a bonus mark. So you actually got 31 out of 30. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> Good job. And you are obviously number one in Chris's highly strung pentagonal <laughs> quiz. Okay. Now, my set question. I know. Are you ready? Yes. Time for something serious. Okay. Finding the vibe, setting the groove. How do you strike the balance between realising the composer's vision and allowing space for the interpretation of the individual musician? Mm. Discuss. So we're talking about in relation to, for example, when I approach covering a song, say my version of yeah. the Bee Gees, How Deep Is Your Love or something like that. Exactly. And then flipping it the other way around when you write something when for write the Kronos Quartet. Yes. And you're like, oh. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just interested in what that feels like both ways because there's not many people who really, you know, own yeah. that space yes. because you tend to move from one to the other. Right. That, that's why. Um, and that is very interesting you bring that up now because I'm composing a piece for the Solem Quartet featuring myself. And we had a kind of groove test, I guess. We had an R&D day and I brought a couple of grooves, <laughs> like a 12-8 groove and then a sort of um, more straight groove in four. And we just were like yeah. swapping the parts and just like, I was just getting a feel for, you know, how they groove as a, as a group. And they did really well, actually, really, really good. But it is important because I need to know that if I throw something out there are we going to be in the right ballpark or should I be thinking completely differently or should I be taking over the groove you know <laughs> so right right which is like it's awkward it is awkward and it does take good communication so I would say um it's a key factor but it requires yeah patience good communication and enough time to because most musicians will get there and um, the bigger the group the harder it is to ensure they'll get there. So orchestrally, if I were to yeah. go to the same place, that might be a trickier beast to manage. Um, but with a smaller oh, okay. ensemble, it's easier. Um, but it's it's so interesting you say that. So for the rehearsals for Jazz Voice, the first thing I did, I got right. in there, we did the first run through and I was like, okay, 
And then I marched straight over to the drummer. I was like, right, me and you, let's get that groove straight. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he's an excellent drummer and um, he was totally fine. But equally, what was written in the score wasn't enough information for him to know what I want him to do. So right. we just... And that's really interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. It, it can't quite be enough information if someone else is doing the arrangement um, and also trying to interpret what the groove may be. Because I think those original recordings I sent over didn't have a drummer, for example. So what was in my head wasn't made um, aware at that point in time. So we went, we had a little duet moment. I was like playing the groove, it was playing the drums and I was like singing to him what the groove is as well he's like right got it let's try it a bit like this but and then i i said okay less symbols more rim shots and sticks and just like getting it into the right place for both the songs actually oh that's wicked we should reference that the, the drummer is ed richardson right yeah he's fantastic he, um, he did a fantastic job yeah. such a tricky show yeah. because you've got eight wonderful musicians um but of course you've then got guy barker lurking over like a whole string <laughs> section and a big band and the big and then bands. these wonderful wonderful virtual six singers and uh and musicians would you ever be tempted to conduct yes yes Oh, it's a Wolf of Jazz Junction <laughs> podcast exclusive. <laughs> yeah, and funnily enough, I um, so I wrote a piece for string orchestra for some of the players from the London Symphony Orchestra and the East London Academy um, group of young people. It was a massive digital project that we did to keep them inspired over lockdown. And we got to do it live yeah. at Trafalgar Square um, in August. And the first rehearsal, oh, wow. yeah, it was epic. Uh, the... Simon, so Simon Rattle was conducting and the very first um, rehearsal... Oh, good God. Tell me you didn't push Simon Rattle out of the way. Get off the podium. Um, he, um, no, um, <laughs> Tim Redmond was the rehearsal conductor, but he couldn't make the first rehearsal. So I was on the podium kind of like slightly shaking, <laughs> doing my best to like, you know, beat four. And then I remembered, oh, it's in two, it's in three. Oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I written here? Um, <laughs> good thing I was actually reading the score like, ah... Um, so yeah, I think it's really an incredible role because it looks like they're just standing there beating time, but it's so much more than that. The rehearsal process mm. is where I really see the value of the conductor in bringing out the nuances of the ensemble as well as the timing. There's so much that goes into being a conductor. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that's a fantastic story. Thank yeah. you. Um, right. <laughs> It's top three album time, Ayana. Um, what do you go back to again and again? That's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I go back to lots of albums again and again. Um, I go back to Sounds of Blackness, um, mm -hmm. Africa to America, Journey of the Drum. I go back to quite often. I go back to Inner Visions, Stevie Wonder, mm -hmm. quite a bit. I go back to... Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. I love that. <laughs> Bam! It's a nice little trio. Woo! We'll take it. <laughs> and I should say, unique. I don't think we've had any of those. I think Innovisions may have come up once or twice, yeah. but not necessarily in the top, you know, have nailed it into the top three. Yes. All right. Finally, it's time to sort our house band. Some say that it's the most eclectic and extraordinary fantasy band in podcast show business. Others say other things. Um, we've currently got Jerry Allen on the piano, Eddie Wakili Hicks on drums, uh, Ron Matthewson on bass, 
Alex Garnett on tenor, Joe Tempoli, the late Joe Tempoli on bass, saxophone, uh, the late John Hassel on trumpet, Mark Nightingale on trombone. We've got three singers, uh, Norma Winston, Carmen McRae and Betty Carter. And plus we've got the wonderful Alice Coltrane on harp. So that's 11 different players. Whoa. Now your task, Ayana, is to remove one of those musicians, if you fancy, because they've won once a break, <laughs> uh, but also to bring in a new player. And they can obviously be from any point in jazz history. What should you like to do to our house band? Um, I'm going to remove Ron. Oh, it's days of numbers. There he's out. <laughs> I'm going to remove Ron and I'm going to put in Charles Mingus. Nice, with his nimble fingers. Brilliant. Do you know? Do you know what? I don't think he's been in the band. Hey. I think this is the first time Charles Mingus has made a board. I think maybe because there's been like a slight fear of what he might do. <laughs> That's why I want him in the band. <laughs> yeah, you're mixing it up, and I love it. Oh, it's happened. Okay, Charles Mingus is officially a member of the Watford Jazz Junction Fantasy Podcast Show Business Band. Right. Moreover, here we go. Thank you, Ayana, for being with us today. Um, what plans for 2022? Where can we see you? What should we do? Oh, I've got some fabulous Where plans. Where should we go? What you need to do is get your diaries out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are two really cool things happening next year. Um, one, mm. fingers crossed, is my very first recital at Wigmore Hall on the 5th of May. Fingers crossed. Wow. And the fingers crossed. Fingers ding. crossed. And the second is a takeover of the Purcell Room on the 8th and 9th of June at the South Bank Centre um, for a very wow. special um, Jamaican heritage exploration. Oh my God, that's tantalising, if, if anything was. Yeah. We'll watch this space. Um, we want to we wanna keep abreast with that. Um, you've got a website? It's ayanamusic.com. Yeah. Ayanamusic.com yes. is the place to go. Very exciting. So, if you've liked what you've listened to, subscribe in case you miss an episode. Um, and if you want to know more about the Jazz Junction, just check out our website, as I say, at whatforjazzjunction.com or, indeed, follow us on our various social media. Um, you can also email us at jazzwatfordlive at gmail.com. Dot com. Uh, next time, we're in conversation with the fabulous tenor player Dave O'Higgins, uh, when we'll find out if he remembers teaching a more hirsute me on a summer jazz course back in 1992. Methinks not. Um, so, until the next time, it's goodbye, lovely listener. It's goodbye, Ayana. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's the most musically lyrical goodbye we've ever had. <laughs> Stay safe and always remember to connect with something new. And see you in 2022. Bye. Bye.